We're studying through the book of Genesis right now, and uh, we've entered into some of the darkest chapters in all of Scripture. And so today we will be preaching on Genesis chapter 4. So I'm just going to invite you, if you have a Bible, open up there. Uh, please stand. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen, I believe, right? Yeah, okay. Um, and we will read God's Word. Genesis chapter 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When, the wor- when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of that city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujahel, and Mahujahel fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubalcane. He was the forger of all instruments, bronze and iron. The sister of Tubalcane was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, the people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the reading of God's word. Would you please pray with me? 
And Father, we come to you uh, in my own heart, echoing the words of our last song. Be our vision. Turn us, O oh God, I pray, out from ourselves and back toward you so that we can be a benefit to you and a benefit to this community. Thank you for the way you've made for us in Jesus. Thank you for his goodness. I pray that we would see this and that, honestly, the, the brightness of his glory would shine all the brighter in the midst of the darkness of this chapter of your word. So please be with me as I speak. Please help your people to hear. For those who have ears to hear, let them hear. For those who have eyes to see, let them see. May your name be honored, glorified, lifted up. And may you be pleased to shine your face upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. It's very frustrating, isn't it? The holes in our understanding, the parts that are just so confusing, the things that feel so desperately out of place, the apparent injustices, the the helpless sense that you can't make heads or tails out of any of this, the desire to have a guide or maybe just a little bit more wisdom to help you get through it, the longing for things to just fall into place at least once, the ugly sense of just how disharmonious this all can be. It's just frustrating, isn't it? So what in the world am I talking about? Um, Oh, I'm being intentionally vague here, but I'm curious for you guys, how did you fill in the blanks in your mind just now? What did you think I was talking about? Where did your mind go when I started talking about the things that confuse and frustrate us, the things that feel so awfully out of place? At one level, I'm actually hoping that you're thinking about this book, because let's be honest, for us modern people, this Bible can be rather confusing. Sometimes, though, the the only thing that really is more confusing and frustrating than reading the Bible is life itself. And of course, that's the other place I hoped your mind would go. The point I'm trying to start with here is that sometimes the reason that this book doesn't make sense to us is the same reason life itself doesn't make sense to us. And that's because we ask the wrong types of questions. A stunning lack of detail. Nearly every commentator writing about the book of Genesis comments on this point, that there is just a stunning lack of detail in the Bible. It is not like the the sort of documentaries or even the modern novels that we read where it's just you have chapters and chapters talking about this guy's dad and that person's mom and all this stuff. It is just straight and to the point. For modern readers, this is actually one of the most frustrating things about the Bible. So in this story, we're left with questions like, you know, where did Cain's mystery wife come from? You know, and, and when Cain says he's afraid that someone's going to kill him, it's like, who? You, you killed the other guy. <laughs> or when he builds a city, like, who's living there? And we can assume that the reason that the author doesn't address these questions is because it doesn't actually serve the author's purpose. It doesn't serve Moses' purpose for writing the book of Genesis the way that he does. It doesn't serve his art. To quote one commentator, Derek Kidner, he said it like this, It cannot be said too strongly that Scripture is the perfect vehicle for God's revelation, and its bold selectiveness, like that of a great painter, is its power. To force the wrong questions on it 
is to blur its image and miss its wisdom. And so today I hope to guide you through the questions that the Bible wants us to ask. When we finished last week, we may have thought that when humanity fell from the garden, that somehow we had hit rock bottom. But what we're going to learn today is that it was actually a lot more like jumping out of a plane. Not only are we still following, falling, we're, still, we're actually picking up speed. And so we'll cover this territory in three acts. The ruin of Cain, the legacy of Cain, and the invasion of grace. And just to let you guys know, because the first act will take up the majority of the questions we're going to ask, we're going to spend a lot of our time there. So when you notice that this sermon's been going for a while and I haven't gotten to point two or three yet, that's by design. Those points will go a lot quicker. But I just want to broadcast that to all of you so you're not staring at your watches. So we start with the ruin of Cain. You know, a German man used a Latin phrase to describe the problem with humanity. Homo incurvatus in se. Man curved in on himself. That's the phrase Martin Luther, Martin Luther, the reformer, used to describe what's wrong with the world. At this point in the story, like I mentioned, we've left the garden. Humanity is outside of the presence of God. It's away from the good, peaceful, orderly, harmonious place that God created. And instead, we're in the disharmonious, confusing, frustrating territory of man turned in on himself. In our journey through the book of Genesis, we were introduced to the concept of sin last week when we saw Adam and Eve fall for the the tricks of the snake, when we saw Adam and Eve rebel against God. This week in Genesis 4, though, it's the first time that sin is mentioned by name and a rather scary description that goes along with it, too. Now, come to think of it, there's actually a lot of firsts in this chapter. It's a biblical account of the first birth, the first son, the first sibling rivalry, the first city, the first death, the first victim, the first murder. What we see here first is Cain's temptation in Genesis 4, 1 through 5. The thing that makes the ruin of Cain so upsetting is the fact that there were such hopeful expectations. Adam and Eve had just been exiled from the garden, from the presence of God, but before removing them, God had made them a promise. He told Eve, you're going to have a son who will be a savior of the world. You will have a son who will crush the head of the serpent. You will have a son who, unlike your husband, is going to slay dragons. In verse 1, lo and behold... Eve has a son. That must have been something. Multiple reasons, obviously. First off, we see that humanity is still fulfilling the cultural mandate God had given them to fill the earth with other image bearers, with those who would have the image of God stamped on them. The world is being filled with people, with physical representations of who God is. You know, it's, it's what God made humanity for, to be part of his good, harmonious creation. So now, it's underneath a curse. So after the pain of Eve's labor, Cain became the world's firstborn son. And according to the biblical narrative, perhaps he's the first person to ever have a belly button. I'll let that sink in. You can tell from Eve's words that she had faith her son would undo all the bad that Adam and her had introduced into the world. She says, I have gotten a man, you might even say a new man, with the help of the Lord. 
In verse 2, she has another son, and she couldn't have foreseen how devastatingly appropriate his name would be because the name Abel literally means breath. It's a word picture that another biblical author a few thousand years later is going to pick up on. The author of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, will open his great work by saying, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Abel of Abel's, all is Abel. This is life outside the garden. But we get ahead of ourselves. Because before we learn about their fates, we first learn about their vocations. Abel tended sheep, and Cain, like his father, worked the ground. And people have always had an impulse to honor something greater than themselves. And so we see here that Cain and Abel brought their offerings to the Lord. They offered up the fruit of their labor, Cain his fruit offering, and Abel the first fruits of his flock and a fat offering. What's important to see here is that these are not sacrifices. This is not them going to make atonement for their sin. They're simply reaching out to God with thanksgiving. You know, there's some of you who've probably heard that the reason Abel's offering was accepted and Cain's was rejected was because Abel made a blood sacrifice and Cain didn't. I think that's a stretch, though, because there's nothing here in the book of Genesis that would indicate that. It's actually a, a lot more like they just gave of the fruit of where they worked. I mean, it makes sense. Cain worked the ground. Abel worked with animals. That's all there is to it. And yet... We read in verses 4 and 5 that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And this is where Genesis invites us to start asking some questions. Like, why did God accept Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's? The lack of explanation, the, the stunning lack of detail is designed to engage your mind as a reader. The lack of detail is the point. What's going on with God here? Why is he doing this to Cain? Why won't he just accept Cain's offering? Doesn't he know what this will do to Cain? I mean, for crying out loud, doesn't he know what this will do to Abel? And we don't know how Cain knew that God didn't regard his offering. All we know is that Cain knew it. Somehow he could just sense that God had no regard for his offering. So he becomes very angry and his face falls. Now, my two-year-old daughter, I think, has done a very good job recapitulating this face. You know, right now, it's because of cake. Every morning, she wakes up, stands up in her cribs, reaches over, and goes, cake. And after we refuse her adorable little question, she gets adorably angry. Her eyes fall to the ground, and her bottom lip sticks out, and though I haven't taken the time to measure it, I'm sure it's just shy of a quarter mile. Her face is downcast. In the words of the King James, Emmeline is very wroth. Why don't I just regard my daughter's desire for cake? You know, can't you see yourself in Cain's shoes here, though? Do you ever feel like, for some reason or another, God is just not regarding you. And you can't seem to make any particularly good reason out of it. I mean, after all, you're at least as good as the next person. You're as good as your coworkers. You're as good as anyone else in church or your neighbors or whoever. Like, why does it seem like God is blessing them, but not blessing you? Like, why does he give them a good marriage and not you? Or why do, their, why do they have so much money? Meanwhile, you're over here working your tail off. Why are their kids so well-behaved and yours are just adorable little nightmares? 
Why does she have all the friends in the world? Meanwhile, I'm over here by myself again. Why does that guy get to lead instead of me? Why is that church growing instead of mine? Why has she always been mom and dad's favorite? Why did she get the promotion? Why does he have it so easy? Why does he get to have a girlfriend? How come they get to have the nice house? How come they're able to get pregnant? How come everything comes so easily to them? How come? Why? 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 Doesn't God see what I'm doing for him? Doesn't he regard everything that I put myself through for his sake? Homo in carvutus in se. When we are turned in on ourselves, when we see what other people have, and the primary response we have is envy and jealousy, it says a lot about us. It certainly said a lot about Cain. God could see past Cain's offering and straight into Cain himself. After all, God had regard for Abel and his offering. The regard is first for the person. That's what makes the offering acceptable. And so when we read the New Testament book of Hebrews in chapter 11, we learn that Abel's offering was accepted because of his faith. Faith, by definition, turns us outside of ourselves. Let me explain. Um, Charles Spurgeon used to tell this really great story of a gardener and a nobleman. He says this, Once upon a time there was a king who ruled over everything in the land. One day there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He took it to his king and said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So as he turned to go, the king said, Wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I want to give you a plot of land. I want to give a plot of land to you freely as a gift so you can garden all of it. The gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all of this, and he said, My, if that's what you get for a carrot, like what if, what if you gave the king something good? The next day, the nobleman came before the king, and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, My lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, Thank you, and took the horse and simply dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed. So the king said to him, Let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. Covetousness is a weird thing. I mean, later on in the Bible storyline, you know, wanting something that doesn't belong to you actually makes the top ten list of things to avoid, which admittedly is a weird way to describe the Ten Commandments, but true nonetheless. But think about it like this. Sometimes we don't even realize we want something until we see someone else who has it. I mean, do you think Cain wanted God's regard? If so, why did he just offer fruits for his offering instead of the first fruits, like, like Abel did? Like, why did he just phone it in by bringing normal old, old fruit? And you can go ahead, compare the descriptions of their offerings. There's a little hint in there for, for the answer to our question of why God regarded Abel's and not Cain's. Oftentimes, for us at least, we don't want something until we see someone else who has it. And sometimes we don't even want something until we see someone else who wants it. Sometimes we mimic their desires. 
It's the only way to explain fashion. And when someone gets something we want, we have a tendency to turn further in on ourselves. Cain was turned in on himself. He didn't desire God's regard. And then when he didn't get it, what does he do? He becomes the victim of his own sad little story. His face, does, his face is downcast. He turns in on himself even further. Cain is a lot like us. He's a lot like your average churchgoer, a half-hearted individual who thinks that somehow God is in his debt, someone who blames God for his misfortune. And when God exercises his own free will and has regard for his brother and not for him and gives Abel something that he doesn't give to Cain, it infuriates Cain. James 4, 1 and 2. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Be careful with covetousness. There's a whole world of evil that can spring from that fountain. Check yourself, a wise man once said, before you wreck yourself. <laughs> Debated whether or not I should say that. Thank you. <laughs> Save it for the second service then. Wait. <laughs> okay. So we move on to see Cain's confrontation with God and with sin. And this is verses 6 and 7. Now, we would expect that God's reaction to Cain would be harsh. Like, what right does Cain have to be upset with God about all of this? But that's not what we see, do we? You know, we don't see God turning in on himself. What we actually see is God extending himself out to Cain. He goes to Cain and asks him, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Like, hey, Cain, you know, I... I didn't regard your offering, buddy. Like, you probably know why. Don't, don't let this ruin your life. He goes on to say, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Makes an invitation. The, the Hebrew here is more literally, you're downcast, but if you do what is good, will you not be lifted up? It's another question that Genesis wants us to ask. Where have we heard this sort of language before? Where have we seen the idea of doing good? If we do good. If you recall, the thing that got the original humans kicked out of the presence of God was the fact that they wanted to be gods themselves, granting themselves the prerogative to define good and evil. They wanted to sit in judgment over God himself. And now we see God coming to Cain and saying, Cain, decide today what is good and what is evil. How are you going to define it, Cain? but it does come with a warning. Adam and Eve were tempted to define good and evil by the beast that approached them from, it, from within the garden. Cain is being tempted by another beast altogether, a beast that approaches him from within himself. It says, if you do well, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. One of the most dangerous things we as humans can do is underestimate the power of sin. You even see that with the way that sin is described here. It's a crouching beast. The picture here is like that of a jungle cat, crouching low, hiding in the shadows, waiting for its moment to pounce. 
You know, at, at the risk of minimizing this dramatic reality, think of a house cat. You know, I, had a, I had a girlfriend in college who had a cat, which honestly should have been an early sign that things weren't going to work out. <laughs> but I used to play this game with the cat where you know, I'd hide behind a wall and make eye contact with it. And then when it saw me, all of a sudden it would crouch low. And then I'd hide myself behind the wall, come back out, and it looked like the cat had been holding still, except it's a couple feet closer. I go behind the wall, step back out, a couple feet closer. Behind the wall, back out, a couple feet closer. And I keep doing that until finally I stick my head around the corner and the cat is right there, completely unavoidable. Sin is hidden from us like a lurking predator. Sin always seems smaller than it actually is. It's, it's actually almost impossible for us to see how, how incredibly self-involved we are, by definition. Like, when you're staring into a mirror, you are profoundly unaware of anything besides yourself. In fact, our inward focus keeps us from seeing that our inward focus is our greatest problem. You get that? Our inward focus keeps us from seeing that our inward focus is our greatest problem. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, basically tells us about the hiddenness of sin. Every ounce of hatred in our hearts is lurking murder. Every lustful glance is hidden adultery. Every bitter and jealous thought has the potential to fracture some of the most important relationships to us. The question for Cain here is this. Will he recognize the beast and cut off its head? Will he master it? Will he be a dragon slayer? Or will he be slayed and devoured? Will the snake crush him too? God goes to Cain and tells him, you can master this thing, Cain. You don't need to let it take over your life. You're not a helpless victim here. God invites him to change. God invites him to repent. God makes Cain aware of what his own inward focus is capable of doing. Are you aware of what it will do to you? So we move on to Cain's exile in verses 8 through 16. Probably the most unsettling thing about sin is that when it devours you, you devour other people. When you are so inordinately concerned with your own troubles, with how you've been wronged, with how you've been victimized, with, with how you've been treated poorly, you create scapegoats and victims of other people. And often, they're the people closest to you. They're your coworkers or your friends, your spouse, your children, your brother. Now, there are people who truly are victims of injustice and wickedness, so don't hear that and think that I'm just skimming over all of that. I mean, this, this story contains Abel in it. Like, there are true victims. But make no mistakes, this story is about Cain. The story is about Cain, and we as the readers are supposed to put ourselves in his shoes. You see, Cain does define good and evil for himself and somehow determines that it would be good for him to murder his own brother. Now, you can imagine the Netflix version of this story where, you know, season begins and they have their offering, all this stuff happens, and then there's five really slow episodes right in the middle of the season showing Cain's descent into madness. But that's not how the Bible does it. The Bible with its stunning lack of detail, tells us in the very next verse that Cain took his brother to a field, and there he rose up and killed him. 
The Apostle John tells us in 1 John 3 that instead of being the anticipated son of the woman who had crushed the dragon's head, he tells us that Cain was of the evil one, that he was the seed of the serpent. And how do we know this? Well, simple, because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. The first story we get of humanity outside of the garden is a murder, and not just a murder, but fratricide. He killed his own brother. At this point, I can't help but just think of poor Eve. Poor Eve. Another victim in the story. One that's oftentimes neglected in all of this. You know, we, have, we have jumped from the plane, and the gravity of sin is pulling us faster and faster. But not, not unlike God's approach to the first humans who didn't listen to his warnings, God once again extends beyond himself and approaches Cain. Verse 9, he says, where is your brother Abel? Does God not know? Of course he knows. Like, just like with Adam and Eve, he's giving Cain an opportunity to confess, an opportunity to just own the fact that he was wrong. He's giving Cain an opportunity for forgiveness and repentance. I don't know, said Cain. When God approached Adam and Eve, they at least had the dignity to push the blame off on somebody else. Cain just outright denies responsibility. Of course he knows where his brother is. Cain turns back to God and says, am I my brother's keeper? The coldness here is beyond description. Like, We were created as communal beings. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. Are you so turned in on yourself that you can actually approach God and say to him, am I my brother's keeper? And expect him to say, well, I guess not. (laughs) On top of that, you also get the sense that Cain is now blaming God for what happened to Abel. Now, like, like, am I my brother's keeper? I thought that was your job, God. Where's your little golden boy? Did you lose him? Where'd the shepherd go? He's taunting God. The Lord is left with no other response. Verses 10 through 12. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain's the first person who's cursed in the biblical narrative. The ground he worked, the ground that swallowed his brother's blood, would be the ground that curses him. And there's no escaping the ground. There's no escaping this curse. This deed is going to follow him for the rest of his life. There is no restitution. And Cain's response here. Cain said to the Lord, "'My punishment is greater than I can bear.'" Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So we see, you know, Cain, Cain is remorseful here, right? But there's a type of remorse that is just as self-absorbed as the covetousness that initially led to Cain's fall. I mean, look at him. Oh my goodness, what this is going to cost me. I can't believe it. I hate this. I hate this. I hate this. Not... Not, oh Lord, look at what this costs you in terms of your honor and your glory, or I mean, for crying out loud, look at what it cost Abel. No, he just looks at himself and says, this is unfair. This is unfair. 
One of the devastating themes of this story is just how far humanity has fallen. We were created to cultivate the earth for human flourishing. We were called to demonstrate God's peaceful, orderly, good, and loving rule over the earth. We were created to master the earth. And here Cain was warned to master himself, and he couldn't even do that. And look at the destruction it brought, too. Like, and, and so here's, here's the point for us. If sin is such a deadly predator, then that means that repentance is our greatest ally. And so when people confront us about something, we need to cultivate in ourselves a softness. Like, listen, if someone comes to you confronting you on something that's going on in your life, instead of being quick to defend yourself, like, oh, what, what do you know? Or, yeah, you're one to talk. Or, oh, the, the nerve of that guy. Or, you know, you have no idea what you're talking about. Instead of that being your knee-jerk response, which is, I would assume, the knee-jerk response of roughly all of us, instead of that being the knee-jerk response, we need to cultivate a response that says, yeah, you know, maybe... Maybe I do need to look at that. Maybe I do need to humble myself here. Maybe I'm not seeing things clearly. Maybe, maybe other people have a perspective on my life that allows them to see the sin that's hiding in front of my door. And we can warn each other of the lions at one another's doorsteps. I'll add to that, though, that it should also make us the type of people who are slow to point out faults in others. And we do well to listen to Jesus' words here before you go and address the speck in your brother's eye. Make sure you remove the log from your own. But that's very different from avoiding conflict altogether, right? Like that, that's different than avoiding confrontation. It's simply taking time to take stock of your own life and taking stock of your own shortcomings before you go and talk to someone else about theirs. But this problem of being turned in on ourselves is two-edged because on the one hand, it is the greatest threat to our church community. Make no mistakes about that. that. That inward focus of the heart is the sort of thing that has destroyed more than a few churches. And yet at the same time, this church is the greatest threat to that inward focus. And so we need to cultivate among ourselves a humility of heart, a softness of heart that's ready to receive confrontation from other people about the sins and shortcomings in our own lives, lest we be like Cain. So that's Cain. That's the fall of Cain. How's everyone feeling? Okay. Yeah. I was telling Daniel on text messages yesterday, I'm like, I hope it's sunny tomorrow, because otherwise it's just going to be a really depressing day for everyone that's here. <laughs> so we move from there to the legacy of Cain, and like I said, this will be somewhat quicker. What is the legacy of all this, okay? Like the stone of sin has been thrown into the sea of human culture. What are those waves going to do? What are the ripple effects? And when God made humanity, he made them in his own image. And since God is a creator, it means that his image bearers are creative. Okay, does that make sense to everybody, hopefully? I mentioned earlier that our original purpose in creation was to cultivate the garden for human flourishing. Now, cultivating is neither leaving things alone, nor is it ruining them. It's creatively rearranging the raw elements of the earth, of people, of materials, whatever, in order to produce human flourishing. So, you know, you cultivate sound waves and you can produce music, or you cultivate the raw elements of the earth and you produce technology and medicine, or you cultivate plants and animals and you have cuisine and, and all sorts of other stuff that animals do. Cultivating creates culture. Cultivating creates culture. And that's exactly what we see the descendants of Cain doing. So they're still made in the image of God. 
however scarred this whole scenario might be. In verse 20, we see that the descendants of Jabal practice animal husbandry and farming. Verse 21, the descendants of Jubal play the lyre and the harp, so they're creating music. Verse 11, Tubal-Cain harvests the raw metallic elements of the earth to produce tools and technology. So what effect does human sin have on each of these endeavors? What effect does human sin have on culture? Let's see two things, oppression and violence. And nice and neatly for us, they're both illustrated by the life of one man, Lamech. In verse 19, we see that Lamech took for himself two wives. God's original design, as we talked about a couple weeks ago in Genesis 2, is that a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, not wives, and that the two, not three, or four, or five, or six, shall become one flesh. Sorry, I lost my point, or my place. Um, But basically from this, okay, so here's the thing. Basically, throughout the rest of the book of Genesis and most of the Old Testament, the only type of marriage you see is polygamy. (laughs) Like, pretty messed up. Messed up for multiple reasons. Like, obviously, as modern people, we're pretty upset by this. Like, doesn't it just seem so oppressive and patriarchal and mean-spirited and disempowering and all this other stuff? Yeah, that's that's the point. (laughs) Like, Robert Alter, he's a Jewish commentator on the book of Genesis, He basically said this. He says, if you read the book of Genesis thinking that it's uh, advocating for something like polygamy, your problem is you don't know how to read. (laughs) Like every single instance of polygamy in the Bible ends with disaster. And it's the stunning lack of detail that allows us as the readers to figure this out on our own. And this kind of goes back. uh, I lost my place again. I'm sorry. Okay. You know, if you pay attention polygamy, disaster for everyone, not just in Genesis, but throughout the rest of the biblical narrative. But it's particularly disastrous for women who, by definition, like I said, are disempowered, oppressed, etc., etc. So you have oppression and you also have violence. Look at Lamech's song in verses 23 and 24. He's singing to his wives. He says, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Lamech's revenge is 77-fold. Right, first off, like if you recall, the first words spoken by a human in the biblical narrative was when Adam sang to his wife about her glory and her beauty. Which, and this is just a personal opinion, which is why I think women still fall for musicians to this day. <laughs> At least in Fort Collins, it's not because of their money throwing that out there. Um, However, what we see here is not a man singing to a woman about her own glory, but he's singing to his wives about his own. You know, last week Daniel mentioned that men were made to be leaders within the home, and it's understandable that that probably made more than a few of us uncomfortable in here. This notion is troubling because men like Lamech actually exist, sometimes even in the church. So let's look at this man, tempted to call him a piece of human debris, but I won't. And what does he sing about? You know, I believe the kids today would call this a diss track. Is that right, kids? I don't know. Thank you. (laughs) 
You know, I, I, have, I have killed a man for merely wounding me. And it, the word he uses here for a young man, it's, it's really a lad. Like, I've, I've killed a child for, sh- for scratching me. Like, he is boasting about his violent accomplishments here. The idea is that Lamech is so turned in on himself that he'll destroy anyone who crosses him. The number seven is obviously a figurative number throughout the Bible. So when God said he would avenge Cain sevenfold, what he's basically telling Cain is, I will give you total protection. You don't need to worry about someone trying to avenge your brother's blood. But when Lamech says, I'll be avenged 77-fold, he's essentially saying, I'll do whatever it takes to defend myself and my pride, even if it means destroying you. I will go above and beyond for myself. And his ability to do it becomes all the more sinister when you see that it's his son who forges instruments of metal. One can imagine it's not just shovels and plowshares, but swords and spears and every other method of violence that we've developed over the years. Lamech's threats aren't empty. He has the means to destroy you. Cain's legacy is a legacy of distorted culture. It's a legacy of distorted art, distorted power, distorted dominion, distorted humanity. It's a culture that doesn't doesn't produce life but celebrates death. It's the legacy of Cain. And the last thing I want you to see here is that culture is flowing from the city. And for reasons that would take too long to get into, like that's just, that's always how it's been. I mean, you can think about the influence of whether it's New York on one coast or San Francisco and Seattle on the others. It's always, like those are always the epicenters of culture. Culture flows out of those areas and influences the rest of, of culture. Like that's just how it's always worked. And that's exactly what the biblical narrative is telling us here. So that puts us in a unique position as Fort Collins. Um, so what do we do with that? Well, let me, let me back up a bit. For starters, as Aaron preached a couple weeks back, our jobs are ways that we can contribute to, to human culture, it's ways we can contribute to human flourishing. Like you can approach your job with an orientation towards serving other people, whether they're your coworkers, your clients, your employees, your employers, whatever, and doing it in a way where you're not turned in on yourself. You know, that's, that's a hard mindset to cultivate, but what I want the crossing to be known for is the sort of people that other people like to do business with. I want people to see us as a people who promote a culture of life in our vocations. And secondly, we're uniquely positioned in the city of Fort Collins because we may not be creating much culture um, in terms of like influence and things like that, but we are sending people out from our university who will. And here's the question. Do we want the university students who come through this city to leave here just as curved in on themselves as everybody else? Or do we want to introduce them into a new culture? A city within a city, if you will. A university within the university. People being trained to not just how to make a career for themselves or how to make a name for themselves, but people who are trained to live in such a way to grow the kingdom of God, to grow the culture of God. And this is why we've brought Brandon Dupree on as, uh, as our intern. You know, he's, he's trying to get a college ministry started here. It's also the reason why we're so grateful to have a guy like Jason Smith, who's part of Fellowship of Christian Athletes as part of our church body. So pray for these guys. They're doing an important work. But in addition, also get to know them. 
See if you can partner with them in terms of finances. See if you can partner with them in terms of ministry. See if you can be a family who hosts other college students, introducing them into a culture that's not curved in on itself, but that is profoundly oriented towards God and loving and serving our neighbors. Can you be a family who brings a college student into your home and shows them what life is like in the kingdom of God? And can you disciple them to do the same? I know that's like a super lofty idea, and we could literally spend an entire sermon just talking about this. But for the sake of time, I just want to finish off by saying this. Where do we find the strength for that? Like, that's a really great idea, right? Like, that sounds awesome, a culture that's like that. How in the world do we get there? And that's where we get to the invasion of grace. Because there's no other way to go forward than that. So we have a brief introduction to another man at the very end of Genesis chapter 4, another seed of the woman named Seth. Eve soberly celebrates his birth by saying, God has appointed for me another offspring, literally another seed, another seed of the woman. Instead of Abel, for Cain has killed him. So Seth has a son named Enosh, and a new line has started. An alternative culture of grace has entered the world. How do I know this? Because it says, from that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. You know, the type of city and the type of culture that Cain's family is building will eventually find its ultimate expression in a few short chapters when people in the city of Babel build the Tower of Babel. And why do they do it? They say, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. I mean, that's really why people go to the city, isn't it? It's why we're told to go to universities, to go out there and make a name for ourselves, get yourself some money, have an impact. And so you see the type of culture that universities and cities, both of them create, a culture where things like knowledge, power, sex, money, relationships, all those sort of things are curved in on themselves. But to call on the name of the Lord is to live your life for the sake, not of your name, but for the sake of his and for the sake of your neighbor. Suddenly, your knowledge isn't used to exalt yourself over other people, but to benefit them. You don't use positions of power to oppress other people, but you use your authority, you husbands, you leaders, you employers, you bosses, you use your authority to serve other people who are in your care. Your sexuality no longer serves your own selfish interests, but becomes a vehicle by which you can enter into the self-giving relationship that is marriage and having children. You no longer selfishly hoard your money but you freely give it to causes that will promote a culture of life, like the crossing. I don't get any money from here, so they got a free plug there, or we. <laughs> but yeah, seriously, like, if you don't think giving is, well, if giving's not part of your normal life, maybe it's because we haven't presented the vision to you clearly enough. This is what we're trying to do. I mean, it takes money to get there, obviously, but I mean, this is, this is why this church exists, to create a culture like this. Can you give yourself, can you give your time, can you give your money something like that. But again, where do we find the power? Where do we find the, the impetus? Where do we find the internal push to do something like that? And it'd take probably a little too long to go into all the details, but um, I guess just trust me when I tell you that calling on the name of the Lord essentially boils down to looking at God and his character. It's looking at what God is like. So what is God like? In fact, what we see time and again in the story is that God is profoundly not curved in on himself. He's mocked by Cain when, he, when his offering is rejected. So God goes out to him and has a heart-to-heart with this rebellious sinner. 
Cain kills his brother, and God approaches him, offering an opportunity for forgiveness and repentance. Even when God judges Cain, and Cain is terrified that he's going to be destroyed, God puts a mark on him. What's the mark? Nobody knows. Like one commentator suggested it's a dog named Mark, which is as good as anything else. Like it's, a, it's all part of that stunning lack of detail thing. Here's the point. He puts a mark on this high-handed rebel in order to protect him. That's what God does. And why would God do that? And honestly, how, would, how can God do that? How is that even possible? How can a just and righteous God protect a murderer? Look with me again at Lamech's taunt. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech will be avenged seventy-sevenfold. Does that sound familiar to you? When the disciples asked Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, how many times do I need to forgive my brother? Seven times? When Jesus tells them, not seven times, he says 77 times. What Jesus is doing is he has this scripture in mind. He's thinking about Lamech's taunt. Lamech said this, I will do whatever it takes to defend myself and my pride, even if it means destroying you. Jesus says, I will do whatever it takes to forgive and cleanse you, even if it means destroying me. Jesus Christ came as God in the flesh. He was the walking, talking name of God. He represented God perfectly and was profoundly not curved in on himself. Jesus became the true son of Eve and slayed the dragons of sin, Satan, and death. Jesus became his brother's keeper and keeps us safe from eternal death. Like Abel, his innocent blood was spilled, but instead of his blood crying out for vengeance, his blood cries out for our forgiveness. And when he came, the curse of Cain fell on him. Jesus was a restless wanderer. When people found him in the Garden of Gethsemane, they did take him and kill him. When he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He really was hidden from God's face. That's how a just and righteous God can forgive all of us inward curved sinners and undo all the bad that has happened in this world. This is how the influence of Cain will end and the culture of death will die. And we access this the same way Abel did. We turn away from ourselves in repentance and we turn toward God in faith. So look to him. Call on his name. Let him unbend you from yourself and experience the power of his word. If you abide in my word, says Jesus, you will, be my, you will truly be my disciples and the truth will set you free. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you at the end of a message like this asking for your help to no longer be so profoundly curved in on ourselves and hoping that by grace, through faith, our eyes would be turned outwards to Christ. Be thou my vision, O God. Be our vision now as we take in what was just spoken, as we eat the words of your scriptures and are satisfied by them, as we take the blood and the body of Christ and reflect on the fact that he has done so so much for us. Thank you for this time in your word. Thanks for this community. Empower us now, I pray, by your grace to be the sort of people who promote a culture of life. And it's in Jesus' name I pray.